Welcome to Mind the Skills Gap, where we explore the barriers to skills transfer and how you can overcome them, flavoured with a sprinkle of neuroscience. In this episode, I speak to Don Taylor, Chairman of Learning Technologies, to find out why he has a problem with learning technology and what's changed since he wrote his definitive book, Learning Technologies in the Workplace. I'm Stella Collins, an evangelist for the neuroscience of learning and co-founder and chief learning officer at Stella Labs. Watch out, Skills Gap. We're coming for you. Hello, and welcome back to the Stella Labs podcast. Today, we have Don Taylor with us, the inimitable Don Taylor, uh, currently known as a researcher and chair of Learning Tech Conference, also known, I think, as uh, a friend of many in, in the world of learning and learning tech, and um, somebody that I've admired for a really long time, and I always find is incredibly supportive and helpful of other people. So welcome, Don. Really nice to have you here. That's a very sweet introduction, Stella. Very nice to be here. Looking forward to having a chat. So I think it'd be really nice, Don, for, you know, people see you at conferences and they see you at Learning Tech and, you know, you're, you're the Don, you're quite important to people. And maybe they don't know so much about you as as they might like to. So I think it'd be really nice to get a little bit of an insight into your, you know, how you got to where you got to and, you know, what skills, attitudes helped or hindered you to get to where you are? It's always dangerous uh, to ask a man to talk about himself because then normally you can just sit back for the next hour and listen for him waffle on. But I'll try to keep it short. I've always been involved in learning and technology, actually, all my adult working life. I left school and went into working as a computer programmer because that's what everyone was talking about in 1980. And then traveled, went to university, came out. When I left university, I went to teach English as a foreign language in Istanbul. I spent uh, five years there. And I was always teaching English in one form or another, even though I did a variety of things. And you say, what skill or attitude has helped me get where I am? I, I don't, I'm a bit nervous about talking about having got anywhere. But insofar as it's enabled me to do what I want to do, I think the the attitude which I had very early on in life, which was from when I left school, in fact, through being in Istanbul, through to where I am now, was just go off and do your thing and try to make it work. So when I left school, I thought, well, this, this computer thing sounds interesting. And I literally went through the yellow pages, the physical yellow pages. My dad had a photocopier at home because he worked at home. And we, I just, I literally typed out a letter and I did a very simple literal copy and paste of typing out 15 names of companies locally that were involved in computers and sticking them onto this thing photocopying it and then I had 15 letters that I sent out and I got one of them came back with a job and that sort of approach has sort of stood me well in life uh it, it does mean sometimes you go down avenues where it possibly would sound like a good idea at the time you think you it's a good idea you do it and then you think well actually <laughs> was that time wasted interestingly enough though usually I find the time hasn't been wasted at all. And later on, it turns out that the things you learn doing that thing, whatever it was, turn out to be incredibly useful. One of them, I used to write in Istanbul, I used to write English language books for a bloke called Osman Zeki Bey. And Osman Zeki Bey and I spoke a combination of English, German and Turkish, because we didn't speak any of those languages particularly well, uh, but enough to communicate with three of them together. And he was talking to me about the book that I'd written for him, he said to me, Don, can you do a a, a copy or can you, Don, can you do a version of 
Oliver Twist in 10,000 words for English, for people learning English. And I said, yeah, okay. Now this is before the World Wide Web, right? You sell these books by somebody getting in a car and driving across Istanbul, across Turkey and selling these books to people, literally putting them in the hand for cash in villages, right? And Turkey's an enormous country. So it's, it's as long east to west as it is from Brighton to Benidorm in Spain. So it's a huge country, yeah. And I wrote this book and I gave it to him. I gave the manuscript. There you are, Osman Seki Bey. I'm a bit worried, I said, about the, the character of, of, of Nancy. Not sure that she's really quite right. Uh, could we could we do something about him? And he 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 looked at me and he said, Don, uh, Don Darby, or Don Don Bay. Just it's 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 okay. Uh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of everything. Es hängt alles von den Marketing ab, or something like that. It all depends on the marketing. And at that point, a penny dropped. And I said, I'd been so focused on the product that I was producing, so focused on this book I was writing, that I didn't realize, I'd forgotten that it was part of an enormous process that started in a basement in Istanbul with a very loud, very large machine printing this thing, to it being bound, being put in the cars, being driven across Turkey to some bloke driving village to village and selling it. I was only part of it. The whole marketing, the sales piece was an integral part of this process. Now, of course, I made some money out of writing the book. I'm, I hope some children in eastern Turkey learn English from reading about it. I hope they weren't too upset by the character of Nancy. But the key thing, the key thing for me that I learned from that was that there's always more to the process than your individual part of it. And it's good to have a wide view of it. And also, generally, generally speaking, it, it does all depend on the marketing because it, you can produce something that's brilliant, but if people don't know about it, nobody cares and it won't happen. And I think that, we're talking about you know, lessons you learn, that for me was a really useful lesson. I'll skip forward to today, right? So I, I left Turkey in 1992, suddenly it's 2022. And in those intervening years, I worked full time in a training company, then I ran the training, ran a part of the training company, then I did a startup, then I did another startup. Uh, I began chairing learning technologies in 2000. And suddenly here we are today, I chair the learning technologies conference, I do a lot of work with startups. I chaired the learning performance institute from 2010 to 2020 to 2020. Um, and I've since been sort of focusing on the research, trying to support people in getting better at doing learning, or, or supporting learning and at chairing the conference, which is all part of it. There we are. That's a sort of nutshell. There were some really nice things in there, Don, that I, I really like the uh, the idea that you do. It's enabled you to do what you want to do. Hmm. And I think it's that ability to sort of, and to make it work, you know, whatever you're doing. And the idea that you learn from experiences that you don't necessarily know when they may come back to you. Yeah. Um, because I had a similar experience. I was a programmer in the 80s. Mm. I continued being programmer for quite a long time. And once I moved into L&D, I thought, well, that's the end of my programming kind of computer right. digital tech life. And now I find myself in a learning technology company and it's incredibly useful. It is incredibly useful. Even it, though it's changed. But of course it's changed and you know, things happen entirely differently now. But But what's interesting is that the mindset is still there. So the sort of meta side of it is absolutely invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. Making sure you've got a process. And I really like the fact that you talk about, you know, it's all those parts of the process that end up with, you know, a satisfied customer. Absolutely. And, and to be taken into account. Uh, absolutely. And it might be the programming bit. And of course, at the other end, it can be the last the last two yards. You know, I always think about airplanes and airlines in this in this respect. You get on a plane, right? And 
those things cost an enormous amount of money. There's a vast amount of R&D goes into them. They, they, the business of running an airline is incredibly complicated. But what determines whether you fly with that company or not is none of these things. It's whether your drink is cold when it arrives to you in your seat. And if it's not, you'll be all humpy. Well, I won't, of course, and you wouldn't sell it. But some people will be all, all, all annoyed. And they say, well, I'm not flying with so-and-so again, despite all of that. So very often these things come down to that last yard, that last bit, that last bit of interaction with the customer. Indeed. Yes, for me, it's whether they smile at me. They don't smile at me. They've had it. <laughs> Uh, who wouldn't smile at you? Who wouldn't? <laughs> oh, you never know. <laughs> Excuse this interruption. At Stella Labs, we help you build business critical skills, not just knowledge. Add the missing pieces to your learning journeys to take people from knowing to doing. Want to know more? Visit stellalabs.eu to learn more. Now, back to the episode. Okay, so that's that's really interesting to sort of hear, you know, that you've you've clearly transitioned and you've taken on things and you've clearly faced challenges and, and kind of adapted to them, I guess. And probably said yes too often, but yeah. in the end it's been worthwhile. I think, you know, my mum was a great one for saying yes to things and then working out how you do it later on. I think I inherited a bit of that. And um I don't do it so much now, but I think in your formative years, which I would say up to the age of about 35, 40 in terms of work, it's certainly worth doing. Yes, taking on things that you don't know, because not everybody else knows how to do them either. Nobody knows how to do them. Honestly, <laughs> that's why they're asking you. So yeah. say yes and work it out. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about you, Don, and you've already talked about sort of supporting startups and things, is you are very generous. You have conversations with people. I've spoken to people who I've never even met before, and they said, <laughs> oh, no, Don Taylor's been incredibly helpful. You know, you share people's tweets, you share insights. What's kind of led you to, to do that? Uh, it's an interesting question, Stella, and I would I would turn the question around and say, why on earth wouldn't you do it? I mean, you 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 walk in on the road and you see somebody, they've got two heavy bags, they want to get across. Don't you just give them a hand with the bags and get across the road? Of course you do. I just think it's, I think it's, I would hope it's a natural instinct that people have, and I think perhaps I'm fortunate enough to have the time and the position to be able to to spend time with people, um, and I hope they find it useful. And I always try to start a call. I've literally just come off one now saying, well, we've got 30 minutes. How can we make sure this is useful for you? And apart from anything else, I think that helps people really focus on getting value out of the conversation, out of me. And perhaps, perhaps lots of people do have these conversations. Perhaps it's simply that I ask that question more often than most people that makes people think I'm more helpful. I don't know. That is an incredibly helpful question, actually, Don, and I think probably one that most <laughs> of us should adopt, um, you know, in a conversation with anybody, really. It's yeah, that kind absolutely. of what's what's the desired outcome that yeah. we're looking for in this conversation. Also, sneakily, sneakily, you slip in. We've got 30 minutes, right? And that just sets the expectation rather than, oh, we're going to sit down and it could last forever. No, we've got 30 minutes. And that's what we've got. That was something I learned early in my career. People <laughs> would ring me up and ask me, can we have a bit of help? And I'd just say yes. And then we could be talking for two hours and I would have not got what I needed to have done. And they'd had a great time, but yeah. I probably was beginning to get frustrated. <laughs> okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to develop that one. Thank you, John. That's a great tip. Okay, now you're very well known for being, you know, in learning tech, you're... Um, chair of learning tech conference so how do you think learning tech is evolving and you know don you're very well known also for having read a very useful book um which is behind me somewhere i can't say it exactly but it is behind me somewhere um and it has been read so what how, how is it evolving and what's changed since you wrote your book 
Well, one of the things I wrote in the book actually was about how the big companies, Amazon, Microsoft, and so on, were going to get involved with learning. It was inevitable it was going to happen, Google. And that's happening. So I'm not surprised about that. What's definitely happening more with learning technology is that we have moved slowly and not enough, but we have moved from the idea that learning technology is about the delivery of content. Now, we haven't moved entirely away from that, but I think that there is enough happening on two fronts to make people understand that's the case. So one thing is that there are lots of companies doing things other than delivering content. The other thing is that people now talk about learning and how we support it in ways that don't focus just on the creation and the delivery of content. For me, that's a huge step forward. I think that the traditional world of L&D where I come from, which was stand-up classroom training in the 1980s, was all about creating and delivering content because there was nothing else you could do. Well, not, not there wasn't else you could do. There were other things you could do, but that, that was the most important bit because it wasn't freely available. And I do find it extraordinary that I was doing this work before the World Wide Web was invented, but the World Wide Web was invented. And after that, suddenly, the creation and delivery of content became much less important. Other things now become possible in learning development as a result, which are fabulous. And this largely revolves around what we do to help people learn better, either by supporting them through the use of algorithms and AI, or by helping them adopt great habits for learning by supporting them in it. I mean, one very simple example is cohort-based learning, which is not complicated. It's what we did all through our school years. Our cohort was a class. But now you have a cohort which helps you in your workplace. You do a course for five weeks. You get together live every Friday. In between times, you learn stuff. You put into place what you've learned and you tackle a challenge. You come back, you discuss it. For example, there are many ways of doing it. Now, we know that's a tremendously effective way of learning, far, far more effective than spending five days listening to content. Spread those five days, contact days, over a week, over five weeks, and the, the difference is enormous. And yet people are fought shy of doing it because it's difficult to arrange procedurally. Yeah. Now the technology is available to help us arrange it, and people are smart enough to do a good job with it, and the practices have evolved. So on the one hand, in terms of what's evolved with learning technologies, you've got this, you've got really high-end, super-duper stuff with AI, and we could talk about that if you want to. But on the other hand, I think this is equally as important, the ability to support people in good learning practice by setting things up in a way that goes well beyond, here's a URL, go and read this thing. So it's the ability to sort of help them connect really easily that, as you say, in the, in the past, you know, it involved, I mean, we're working on a project at the moment, and it's in incredibly complex, involving an awful lot of diaries and things. <laughs> and if they had a better tool to actually just have people kind of choose, you know, even if it was sort of a, a version of Calendly or something, yeah. I think they'd find it a lot easier to actually sort out the situation. Um, and I really, really like that idea of cohort learning. I was with a group this morning and that's what we did, a action learning set type activity. Yeah. They all said, you know, the guy who had the challenge, he got a lot of really helpful ideas from his colleagues and a lot of reflection. And that was the thing they all talked about. It was that ability to reflect on their normal practice and mm. to have somebody else kind of challenge them. Just think differently, come at it from a different view. So that, yeah, cohort learning, peer learning, whatever you call it. 
I do believe, well, in cohort peer learning, slightly different things, I think cohort learning involves peer learning over a structured period of time. You can learn from your peers in a variety okay. of ways. Yeah. But I do think I do think you're right that too often, and this comes back to the point that in the past, the classroom teacher has been the source of information. Um, I think too often we've carried that mindset, that's what I call the schoolroom assumption into the workplace. And I think that we can do a much better job supporting people of learning in learning if we accept that often the answer or at least part of the answer exists in the room if we can yeah. just get people to share it it's not just that there's information there it's also as you say the ability to bring it out reflect on it talk about it share it that process helps it stick and helps people go through that mental process of saying, I'm taking something, I'm assessing it, I'm weighing it against my experience, and now I'm going to come up with a conclusion for myself. That process of internalizing it, I think, is crucial to getting people to effective adult learning. Which is far, far better than somebody telling you how to do it or what, telling you what to do. But hang on, I don't, I don't want to beat up classroom teachers. In no, school, no, 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 no. I think instruction is helpful. And, and also sometimes, actually, you just need to know. You can't, I'm not a great fan of the, oh, let them work it out for themselves. Sometimes you've, you've, you yeah. need to know something. Yeah. So there is always room for instruction. I'd hate to get onto a bridge which was built by somebody who'd figured out how to build bridges while they were building it. <laughs> so I, there is always room for instruction. But yes. let's make sure we're using things in the right way and choosing the right tool for the job. Yeah, I think it's choosing what's right at the right time for the right people. Right. One of the things we talk about when we're doing train the trainer programs is saying to the trainer, you're a resource if you're required. But if you're not required as a resource, then you are there to guide the process. Because sometimes the trainer does know something that not everybody else knows. Yes. And and also guides the process in all those ways of facilitating and what have yeah. you, which, which are probably more difficult than being a subject matter expert. It's it's a real skill. And of course, the best teachers are both great facilitators and subject matter experts. Yeah, indeed. So you mentioned AI. So let's not let's not brush it under the carpet. What are your <laughs> there's a massive question for you, Don. What are your thoughts on AI? There in the people, learning field. In the learning field. There are lots of people who, who are well uh, positioned to uh, to talk about this. I'll talk about it from the point of view of my global sentiment survey. AI, uh, five years ago, was a rising star. It peaked three years ago. It's fabulously uh, uh, important. Everyone found it super interesting. Since then, it's slipped down the table. And the question I ask people every year with my global sentiment survey is, what's hot in L&D this year? AI, in other words, at the moment, is not seen as being hot. I think that's a good thing because I think it's moved from its point of easy fascination to a more tempered, mature assessment. Also, there's less writing about it in the general press. If you remember three, four years ago, we had all of these pictures of robots which were half human, half machine. They're going to take over the world. And, you know, that's not AI. Um, I think what we're seeing happening with AI now is a bit like the adoption of electric power at the beginning of the 20th century. When steam power was on the wane and electric power started coming to factories, people initially started replacing the steam engines with electric engines, so a one-for-one swap. Steam engines sat at one end of a factory floor, ran, a ran through a belt a series of crankshafts that ran along the entire length of the factory, of which belts came, and those belts were used to 
turn, whatever, a lathe, things. <laughs> things, right? Spin, spinning wheels. Spinning things, right. Okay. And in the early 20th century, electric motors were put into the big electric, big steam motors and replaced them, which is a very poor use of electricity. Then what happened within 10, 20 years was uh, small individual electric motors started being used for specific jobs, which, of course, look at it now, it's obvious, but it wasn't obvious then. I think our view of AI was the view of the big steam engine. Oh, it's going to change everything. It's going to do everything. What we're now seeing is AI being used in small ways, small motors doing this, doing that to make specific things happen. And and I, I'm using AI slightly usely here. I mean, really, I'm talking about any any form of algorithm that, that works on a collection of data in order to produce stuff that's useful. So if we think about uh, filtered by a non-exec director, they have a great process of uh, what they call content intelligence, where they use a collection of algorithms in order to find well, what would be the content that actually suits your people and the needs they have of these 100,000 bits of content you've got. And, you know, that's a solution to the issue of, well, what's the, I'm going to type leadership into my catalogue and I'm going to get 50,000 results. Uh, I've talked to other people who are doing great things with AI in terms of helping people change their learning habits. So you observe mm -hmm. how somebody's interacting with content. You suggest them, hey, you're doing this, but if you thought about maybe coming yes. back and reflecting on it and doing this and the other. So there are lots of things, but it's not the big engine. It's small things. And that's why it's not sexy. That's why it's not hot. It's because it's actually happening. It's under the uh, bonnet, under the hood, as the Americans say. It's it's being located in the various things we're doing. It's just part of the course. It's just now. a tool now, isn't it? It's exactly. another of, of the tools we have exactly. in our toolkit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. So one of the questions I quite like to ask people and see if it makes them, you know, shout, smile, whatever it might be. What's what's a bee in your bonnet right now? And for anybody who's not uh, an English person, that means kind of uh, what's exciting you, annoying you, you know, buzzing around in your head. Yeah, bee in your bonnet, because bees are, are wonderful creatures, but they, let's say a wasp in your head, uh, it would be a better translation. Uh, a wasp in your head, because it's annoying, doesn't serve a useful purpose and you can't get rid of the noise. Uh, my problem with learning technology is that people are too focused on the technology, and I would far rather people focus on the people and the learning. And you mentioned my book earlier. Actually, the last word, quite deliberately in the book, is the word people. It's a yes. bit like uh, God recherche ton perdu, where I think it starts with the word and finishes with the word time. Um, a French listener will correct me on my pronunciation and my <laughs> knowledge of the manuscript. Um, and I think that it's understandable that technology is wonderful and you could do super things with it, but it is all useless without the engagement of people and them finding it valuable. And we come back to this business of all of that work in the airline business, going into getting that plane built and flying from A to B and you deciding you hated it, not you, me deciding I hated oh. it because my, my Chardonnay arrived slightly warm. Oh. Um, yeah, uh, goodness sake. Um, so that that bit, that last bit is so important. But actually with learning, it's not just the last bit. It's shot through the whole thing. So if you are creating content, don't just create it by putting words on a page. Work with the organization, work with the subject matter experts, work with everything to make sure that this content is being done in a way that helps people learn it, if it's necessary for it to be learned. And also, of course, work with the organisation to make sure that it is fit for purpose. 
is it actually solving the problem that you've got in the first place? Maybe it's not a training problem at all, but let's assume it is. And it's a learning problem. Then let's make sure that we're creating this content in the right way. And then everything else follows through from that. You've got some content, so what? It doesn't make any difference to anybody's life unless they know about it. And very, very importantly, unless they're motivated to do something about it. Without it's motivation, the doing. It's the doing yeah. that's so important. Yeah. And motivation is, is crucial. Motivation to open something up, to learn something about it, and then, as you say, to do, to take action on it. Um, that doesn't, nobody gets motivated. Well, perhaps some people do, but I can't think of anybody who gets motivated by technology, right? The motivation comes intrinsically or extrinsically, and it is supported by the environment you're in. That's nothing to do with technology. It's to do with us working with managers, working with people, working with organizations to make sure that there is a strong sense that learning is valuable and worthwhile for me. None of this relies on technology. It could be supported by it, but the ultimate side of it is, comes down to human beings and how they learn. So my bee in my bonnet is an over-focus on technology, Stella, and okay. an insufficient insufficient focus on people i always think it's people first because if we haven't got the people at the heart of it we're not going to design learning we're not going to support learning we're not going to coach them in the way that they actually want need and make sense to them absolutely okay what do you think so you've already said we should perhaps stop focusing on on the learning tech as a, as a kind of strong focus what else should we stop start do more of in learning or should we even be thinking about ourselves in learning? Should we be thinking about, you know, within an organisation? Yeah, I think we should be thinking about ourselves as people who are supporting performance. And I think actually that's a, that's a crucial thing that we're not doing enough of. I think we are, people like me came into this, going back to the, the origin story, came into learning field in order to help people, you help individuals, help them learn. Great. Uh, that's a very strong motivation. It's, there's, there's a lot behind it. But if we're working in corporate learning development, if we're supporting people learning in organisations, what actually matters is performance. There is nothing wrong with helping people learn for their own sake. But the people who are paying the checks are the people who want the organisation to perform better. So I always say that the role of learning development is to help individuals and organisations fulfil their potential. And that means that, yes, we help the individual, but we have to also bear in mind the strategic aims of the organization. And the strategic aim of the organization has nothing to do with learning and everything to do with performance. So I believe that we should be focused on helping people do their jobs better. And that means that we have to move out of a lot of the traditional roles of L&D, get out of the cupboard where we are, get out of the office where we are, and go and talk to other people much, much more than we have done in the past. I think that we are too inclined to to sit in the the bit of the building physically or organisationally that is learning and not go out and do what Nigel Payne calls field work, which is the excellent yeah. term. Let's go out and see what's actually going on. Talk to people about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find out what that because I think L and D people and you know I'm one of them. We love learning. We think it's really interesting. So then we get really focused on it. We end up gazing at our own navels and not really noticing what else is out there. The thing is, the thing is that learning is really interesting. So it's understandable, yes. right? You know, of course, we want to have these chats. We want to uh, talk talk about learning. We want to understand what is it that helps people learn better. And we want to do all the things that are around that. It's not enough. You know, we if we really want to do our jobs properly, we've got to do the other stuff as well. And yeah. actually, that is equally fascinating if we're prepared to throw ourselves into it. Indeed. I mean, for me, learning is the going from maybe no awareness at all of something to actually being able to do something 
valuable, useful at work, or it may be outside work, but it's it's the being able to do and eventually master something. To me, that's, you know, people talk about learning in many ways, but I think they forget that it's actually really quite a long process. I think, well, it, it may be, it may not be. I mean, I always use the example of hearing, um, reading reading this this poem, Sir Clericue, of course, I'm going to get it wrong now. Uh, <laughs> it's 14 words long. It's not very difficult. Dante Alighieri seldom troubled a dairy. He wrote The Inferno on a bottle of Perno. Now, this is absurd. Perno wasn't around when Dante Alighieri was writing The Inferno, right? Uh, it is utterly ridiculous. It comes in a book that I got in Istanbul when I was living there at the British Council sale. It's called A Clericue. And A Clericue is a four-line poem with two rhyming couplets that are, sorry, two non-rhyming couplets that are, um, or they can be rhyming or not, that reflect on absurdly on a biography. But here's the thing. We talk about, you said learning is a long process. Well, it can be a long process, and very often it is. But I read that once. And I remembered it. it I'm not trying to make out I'm some sort of savant. It just struck me as amusing and it hit my head. I, 15 years later, said it to my wife. She heard it once. She found out laughing because basically odd. And then she remembered it. And then later we were walking down the road in Florence and we passed. <laughs> we passed the statue of Dante Alighieri and we both stopped and fell about laughing because we just had this vision of this great, figure in Italian literature being drunk on Perno. So sometimes we learn things instantly. We don't know why. Sometimes we learn things over a period of time and it takes a long time to do it. I'm trying to improve my Turkish at the moment. I will never finish, never finish yeah. trying to improve my yeah. Turkish. I, I, I can keep doing this for 30 years. I won't get to the point where I'm good enough. Um, it is, and that that in itself is a fabulous journey. And I, I love that fact. Um, I think what we're describing here, and this is a not, nothing apropos of what you said at all, Stella, but it's one of one of the, another bee in my bonnet, <laughs> is that we use the word learning to describe wide, many things very widely and very loosely to describe many things, and yes. that's a real issue for us in our community itself, but also in the rest of the world. If Jane in account says that she learned something, she will mean something. When Bob in delivery and logistics says uh, he's learned something he may mean something completely different indeed we may mean something in our, in our field we may agree about what it means but when we're talking with other people we have to be clear and we have to go and meet them where they are on their definition of learning otherwise all we're going to do is alienate them let's mm -hmm. keep them on side and talk about it and, and work with it and accept that actually learning has is a portmanteau word that covers a whole yep. bunch of different processes. Yes, I was I was about to say the risk of, you know, gazing at our navels and defining <laughs> different types of learning. That was exactly what I wanted to say. And just in case you need it, Sir Humphrey Davy, who abominated gravy, lived in the obdium of having discovered sodium. <laughs> which my mum taught me once and I uh, Now here's the interesting thing so my dad that was the first cleric who I learned my dad taught me that <laughs> at home right and I loved it I fell about and it's again if you're not a native English speaker of language of, of English um odium is uh bad repute Hatred, so yes. why why should Sir Humphrey Davy have everyone attacking him for invent for discovering sodium makes no sense at all and it's simultaneously very funny just slightly geeky so I again I heard that once and I but I couldn't remember for the life of me the name of the bloke who wrote it. Ah. And so it took several repetitions going back to my dad and saying, who was that? Oh, it's Clericue. So there are some things which stick and some things which just don't. Yes, yes. And we know that rhyming helps. But anyway, let's let's <laughs> stop going down that route. We could be here forever. <laughs>
Um, because, you know, we are transitioning to become a learning tech company and, um, you know, learning tech for us is really important at the moment as part of that bigger package that people need in order to, to perform at work. Is there, what do you think is currently missing from learning tech? Is there anything we should be really thinking about that we should be adding in, thinking about? And that's not just us. That's, you know, the wider community. Integration. I'd say I think you can do lots of things with technology, but I think we are still insufficiently integrated with the rest of the business. If we are, as I said, interested in helping individuals and organisations fulfil their potential, then the learning technologies that we use have to be integrated into the overall systems of the business. Increasingly, that's happening. And you talk to people who've got systems in place and they say, well, we've got our APIs and we can make it fit in in really quite sophisticated systems. Even so, I think we're not doing a good enough job of it widely enough, and I still don't think it's the default that we expect. The result is, again, learning is pushed over into its corner. Oh, that's the learning system over there, and here's what you use to actually do your job. Yes. They should be far closer integrated. Yeah, I can only agree there that it's it's about making it accessible to people so that they, they use it every day. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ask you one last question, Donald. Mm. So if an organisation had unlimited resources, is there an <laughs> ultimate, an ultimate kind of solution you would you would give them, knowing everything you know uh, or have experience? Ultimate, the ultimate. They've got they've got no limit on their budget or anything else. No, everything's everything's available. This is going to sound really weird. I would provide each of them with a personal assistant for learning. And this this is an actual person. I suppose it could be technology, who knows? But let's say it's an actual person whose job it is to work with this person to not answer their questions, but help them answer their questions. So how do I do this? What's happening next? I need to do some research to, okay, all of these questions, very short scale. How do I do this function in Excel right through to, I'm planning this thing for two years time and we need to get our report together for it. Where do I look? Where don't I look? That person would be the person they would ask questions to and would respond in ways, uh, it sounds like a sort of quasi-Socratic, I don't, don't mean it that way, but would respond with questions to help them go and find the information. I'd say it that way around, because if it's just answering, it might as well be a walking encyclopedia. What I'm looking for is somebody that would enable that person to ask the right questions and go and look in the right places for the answers. So what they're doing is they're both solving the, the initial problem and developing the meta skill of, wonder, of of understanding the right questions to ask and the meta knowledge of where to go and look for it. I think that would be really valuable. And I think what I'd add to that is that kind of nudging afterwards that keeps saying, and now yes. what are you going to do with it? Yes, absolutely. What are you and going to do with it? And how can because... I help you? Yeah, and, and I think they have links with other people as well. So, you know, they might say, hey, look, <laughs> you're doing this work. But by the way, by the way, Bob, your manager is expecting this thing tomorrow. I don't know if you remembered that. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we've got everything. It, the stuff is focused on being productive, not just on learning. Fantastic. Donald, I really like your new invention. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do our best at Stellar Labs to at least do part of that invention. I, I hope so. I'm, uh, by the way, it's trademarked already while we've been talking. I've, okay. I've got, it's the Donbot. That's what the Donbot. Is, the Donbot. Yeah. <laughs> Donald, thank you very much for a, um, a wide-ranging conversation, and I really look forward to meeting up again and uh, 
I hope other people enjoy it too. Before too long, we will meet again, sir. Thanks. Indeed. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please share it with your friends and colleagues and visit our website, www.stellalabs.eu, to learn more about how we help you reach for the stars. Tune in to the next episode.